Welcome to this podcast featuring well-known Bible teacher, Kevin Connor. For more information, visit kevinconnor.org. Amen. All right, continuing our series on, uh, on the redemptive names of God. Uh, remember the very first scripture that we looked at from Malachi, where it says, And they that fear the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened, and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before them, before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. And so we've been thinking upon his name in the last uh, number of weeks on the redemptive names. And so tonight we come to another one of the glorious redemptive names of God, as we have on our notes here from the Old Testament. This compound redemptive name of the Lord is another of the glorious redemptive names of God, meeting man's need of righteousness. And uh, this redemptive name is the Lord our Righteousness, or Jehovah Sidkenu. I'd like you to turn to uh, two scriptures here that I have on your notes, and uh, maybe you can just uh, uh, write in any additional thoughts that may come to you as we share. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. <coughs> Jeremiah chapter 23. And in a couple of weeks' time, we'll sort of be bringing the redemptive names together in the, in the most glorious compound redemptive name of all names, and that's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, let's look at uh, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verses 5 and 6. And we'll look at the historical setting uh, for this name in, uh, in a moment here. So the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah in verse 5 of chapter 23 says, Behold the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called, and I guess it's the same in your translation, it's uh, capitalized here, the Lord our righteousness. And those of you who have the uh, authorized version in the margin, you'll see that the Lord our righteousness is Jehovah Sidkenu. How many have that in your marginal reference there? Okay, tremendous prophecy, which we'll look at in a moment, but let me read it again. The days come. What days? Pointing to messianic times, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, says the Lord that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch, and uh, we'll see the significance of this a little bit more in a moment here, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth in his days. So it's pers uh, personified, as personalized in his days. This king, the righteous branch, the king, in his days Judah shall be saved, Israel will dwell safely, and this is his name. What is his name? Whereby he shall be called Jehovah Sidkenu, or the Lord our righteousness. Now let's turn over to the next passage of scripture you have on your notes there. And here uh, we have a, quite a contrast, but it's the same name. And we'll see the significance of this in a, in a little while here. Jeremiah chapter 33. <coughs> And we've put the whole passage down on your notes, but just for the uh, moment we'll read verses uh, 15 and 16. Uh, very similar to what we've read in Jeremiah chapter 23, except there's a change in the person here, uh, or it's added to another person. So Jeremiah 33 and verse 15. 
In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness. Now, back here it was a righteous branch. Here it's the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. I will raise up unto David a righteous branch. Here I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute judgment. Uh, back here it's judge, uh, judgment and justice. Here it's judgment and righteousness in the land or in the earth. In those days shall Judah be saved, the same as back in chapter 23. And Jerusalem, in contrast to Israel, Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And notice the change here. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called. Now back in chapter 23, this is the name where, uh, whereby he shall be called. But here... This is the name wherewith she shall be called. And what is that name? The Lord, our righteousness. And if you have the marginal reference again, Jehovah said, can you? So he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. She will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So as I put on your notes, that it's his name, it's her name. There's a he and a she that are partakers of the same name here. And I believe ultimately it points to Christ and the church, the bride. When my wife married me, she took my name. And as I've often said, and my money. But she took my name, wasn't ashamed to take it, were you, darling? Say it no loud. Everybody hear that. Okay? So the bride takes the, the bridegroom's name. And I believe here we have a tremendous picture of, as we're going to see throughout here, Christ and the church. So the Lord, our righteousness... Now this is the name wherewith he shall be called, the Lord, but this is the name whereby she shall be called. Because the bride city, representing Jerusalem here, uh, is partaker of the name. I will write upon him the name of my God. I will write upon him the name of the city of my God. And the city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And uh, the bride partaking of his name, the Lord our Righteousness. Uh, so his name and her name. All right, let's go to section B here. And uh, as we've been saying on each of the re uh, redemptive names, as each of the compound redemptive names has been revealed, it's always in connection with some particular need of man that God is able to meet every need of man. And we're particularly uh, talking about man's need of righteousness. In the previous names, we've seen uh, Jehovah uh, Jireh, the Lord my provider, Jehovah uh, Nissi, the Lord my banner, the Jehovah Rapha, the Lord my healer, the Jehovah Shalom, the Lord my peace, uh, Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And each of the redemptive names is connected with some need of man as we've been sharing together. Okay, here we have the redemptive name, Jehovah said, can you, the Lord our righteousness, man's need of righteousness. And as uh, we've looked at the, uh, the, the progressive revelation of these names, each of these names have been revealed in some distinctive setting uh, where man's need is revealed. So when the Lord revealed uh, the redemptive name, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord my provider, that was sort of an answer to Isaac's question, uh, my, my father, here is the fire and here is the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord, my provider. God will provide himself a lamb. So God provided the lamb 
in the substitute victim, as we saw on that. So that was the historical setting uh, into which the, the compound redemptive name was spoken and revealed. When it comes to the matter of healing, uh, here, uh, Israel had been brought to the bitter waters of Marah, and uh, the waters were bitter, they couldn't uh, drink them, so God showed Moses the tree, as we've seen, the revelation of the tree. When he cast the tree into the waters, the waters were healed. And in relation to the healing, the waters needing healing, uh, God spoke into that situation, the redemptive name, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth thee. So each situation, each uh, uh, historical situation, God speaks into man's need a compound redemptive name. That's the scene that we have here. All right, now I've just put on uh, under section B the historical setting for the revelation of this redemptive name. And uh, just touching on the high spots, uh, we find in the book of Exodus, uh, Israel's deliverance as a nation from Egypt by the power of Jehovah, uh, the Redeemer. I am the Lord, this is my name forever and ever. I am who I am, I am that I am, I will be all that I will be, and I will be everything that Israel ever needs me to be. That's what God revealed there. So we have Israel's deliverance as a nation. And then from Exodus right through to 1 Kings chapter 11 and uh, 12, the chapters there I'll put there, we have the United Nation or the United Kingdom of Israel right through for a number of years. Then when we get to 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12, we find that the nation is divided into two kingdoms and two houses. And one house, the northern kingdom, is called the House of Israel. Uh, consisting of ten tribes, and then we have the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, consisting of two tribes, plus the tribe of Levi. So we have two distinct kingdoms, two distinct houses, or a divided nation. And then as we study the biblical history on this, and I'm saying all this just to get the significance of the name that's revealed here, uh, spoken into the historical situation, uh, we have the ungodly kings of the house of Israel. If I remember correctly, there were about 19 kings, so one queen of the house of Israel, and every one of those kings were ungodly, and they all followed, as I've just briefly put on your notes here, without turning to a lot of scripture, they all followed in the sins of Jeroboam, who set up the golden calf system, the golden calf worship, uh, the, every one of them, they, they followed in the sins of Jeroboam. And so uh, we find that at the end of this uh, period of time, uh, the northern kingdom, as you have on your notes there, was taken into Assyria or into the Assyrian captivity about B.C. 721 and virtually not to return to the land of Palestine again. Maybe a remnant of them, but they were to be scattered among the nations and wander through the nations uh, into the isles of the sea and so forth. And today there's different theories about that, the lost tribes, of Israel and so forth, different theories that uh, we don't need to mention at the moment. When we come to the southern kingdom of the house of Judah, uh, we find that there were godly kings and ungodly kings. And it's very interesting to note that all the godly kings, uh, God judged them whether they were godly or not if they were as David. They walked not in the ways of David their father, or they were as David their father. So David is picked out as the godly king. Uh, there's only that one major blot on David's life. And without excusing David, David was not an adulterer. David committed adultery, but he was not an adulterer. He did not live a lifestyle. It was not a track record with him. And God punished him for it, 
But uh, God said that David was the man after my heart. Only in the matter of, of Uriah did he fail the Lord. That's the Lord's record about David. So though he committed adultery, he was not an adulterer. He didn't live a constant track life, a track record of adultery continually. There is that blot on his life. But God still picks David out as the man after my heart. So every king, whether of the house of Israel or the house of Judah, are judged according to David, the standard godly man. Then all the other kings are judged, uh, the ungodly kings are judged as Jeroboam. So God picks out two men, David and Jeroboam, and every king, 39 of them as we've got on our notes, there were about 39 kings in all, one queen amongst them, uh, and every one of them were judged by two men, either David, the man after God's heart, or Jeroboam, the one who set up the whole idolatrous calf system. And everybody, every king was judged by those two men. They were sort of the two standard men, the standard ungodly man and the standard uh, godly man. Now, when we come to Jeremiah chapter 1, let's go to, uh, on your note here, <coughs> Because uh, this redemptive name, the Lord our righteousness, or Jehovah said, can you, is revealed distinctly in the time of Jeremiah. And uh, in those two scriptures we've read particularly, Jeremiah chapter 1, and uh, I'll just read a, uh, two or three verses here. I've put down the whole passage uh, just for your notes here. But uh, let me just read two or three verses from verse 1. So we're looking at the historical setting where God spoke this redemptive name into that situation. So we're told in Jeremiah 1 verse 1, The words of Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, uh, king of Judah in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the first month. And then in verse 10, we have Jeremiah's commission. And though we uh, apply this in uh, spiritual principle, the national situation was this in verse 10. God says, See... I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms uh, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, and second phase to build and to plant. So notice what God's saying. I've set thee this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. So the first number of chapters deal with the kingdom. The kingdom of Israel has already gone into Assyrian captivity about 100 years before. Uh, Jeremiah is dealing with uh, the kingdom of Judah the nation of Judah and other Gentile nations through his book. So God says, I've set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, pull down, destroy and throw down. And second phase of his ministry, which the Jew can never figure out, was to build and plant because Jeremiah disappeared from the land and they never can figure out what happened to the second phase. And that's why uh, uh, when Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Some of us said, well, you, you, maybe you're Jeremiah or Elijah, one of the prophets. Why did they say that? Because that mysterious thing that happened to Jeremiah, uh, because his book mainly concerns rooting out. So what I'm saying here now is that Jeremiah is the one that witnesses the rooting out, tearing down, plucking up and destroying of the last five 
Judeo-Davidic kings. And Zedekiah is uh, taken captive and his eyes are put out and then he's slain in Babylon, he dies in Babylon. And there's never been a Judeo-Davidic king reigning over Israel in the land of Israel or the land of Palestine since that day. Nearly 2,520 years. And there's more in that than meets the ear. So here Jeremiah is going through this rooting down, seeing the kings. Uh, I haven't got them all in order in my notes here. I've got them in my other notes on this area. But Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin uh, and then Ammon and then uh, Josiah and then Zedekiah. I think that's the five of them. Uh, all rooted out, plucked up and destroyed, so to speak. And Jeremiah lives to see Zedekiah, the last king of the Judeo-Davidic uh, throne. And then the, there's never been a king, as I said, to reign over the throne uh, since that time. Let's turn over to a problem scripture here that we haven't got time to answer. But uh, let me put the problem in your mind. Ger uh, Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49. Genesis 49, now in verse 8, and so when I say the Judeo-Christian, I'm talking about the king of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, the Judeo-Davidic throne. Okay, uh, in Genesis 49, Jacob is prophesying over his sons, um, his own sons, he knew who they were, he knew about them, but he wasn't afraid to prophesy over his own sons, though he knew them. So in verse 8, he says, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Judah means praise. And so, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Why? Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. Uh, he, uh, he couched as a lion and as an old lion who shall rouse him up. So, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Then in verse 10 we have the peculiar prophecy. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from between his feet, unto Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his fall unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. We think of Jesus uh, riding on the colt and the fall of an ass, the two donkeys, the significance of that. Uh, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. But the verse 10 particularly, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, in Jeremiah's time, this is the problem. And it's been a problem virtually ever since to most of Bible expositors if they don't study some uh, history here. That uh, from Zedekiah right through to Christ, most people accept that Christ is Shiloh. And the prophecy says, I haven't got the chalkboard to scribble on a night. Uh, the prophecy says the scepter shall not depart from Judah till Shiloh come. Now Zedekiah is the last of the Judeo-Davidic kings. And yet Shiloh hasn't come. About 600 years gap there, there's a breach there. And they can't figure it out. What about the throne? What about the kings of Judah? 
David will never lack a man to sit upon the throne. In Jeremiah chapter 33, the passage I've given you. What about all this? That's the problem we've got in hand. Okay, let's, uh, let's go to our notes here, down the last main paragraph of section B. So the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom, the house of Judah, dealt with in 2 Kings 25. Uh, in Jeremiah 52, it shows the desolation of the temple, the city, the land, the people, and Zedekiah, the last Judeo-Davidic king ever to reign over the throne of David in Palestine. Of the 39 kings of Israel and Judah, there were only about five really righteous kings. And so the problem we've got here is what of Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. All right, now, it's in the midst of that whole setting. House of Israel has gone into Assyrian captivity about 100 years before. House of uh, Judah is going into Babylonian captivity under various uh, invasions from Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, the kings are being rooted out. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, um, forget the order now, uh, Am uh, Josiah, Ammon, uh, somewhere in there, and Zedekiah, the last one. Kings are being rooted out. And where's the throne? Where's Jeremiah going to build and plant? Now let's go back to Jeremiah chapter 23 in the light of that. I hope that little bit of history wasn't too heavy for your minds. Amen? Doesn't hurt to think. Or does it? <laughs> That's all in the Bible. That's Bible history. We covered all the books, historical books there right through to the prophetical books. Okay, now, under section C, and I'd like, I've put down some uh, asterisks there. I'd like you to maybe uh, take down some notes, uh, comments if you can. Write both hands here. All right, now, under section C, messianic prophetics. In the midst of confusion and contradiction, the prophetic word comes. And so we know Jeremiah 23 with 33 and Isaiah 9 and Luke 1, which I'm putting down uh, some thoughts together. Okay, first asterisk. The Lord says, Behold, the days come, says the Lord. Uh, number one asterisk, I will raise unto David a righteous branch. Okay, we'll, we'll explain this in a moment. A righteous branch, first asterisk. A righteous branch. Second asterisk, it would be a king of David's line. Now, the, the Judeo-Davidic kings are being slaughtered. They've been unrighteous. Now the Lord says, I'm, the days are coming, I'm going to raise up a righteous branch. So, asterisk number one, a righteous branch. Asterisk number two, a king of David's line, because the Davidic covenant is at stake. The Davidic covenant, a king of David's line. Asterisk number three, this king will reign and prosper. In contrast to the five kings that uh, Jeremiah is seeing rooted out and plucked up and destroyed and thrown down, there's going to be this king, the righteous branch, a king of David's line, and this king will reign and prosper. So third asterisk is reigning and prospering. You can reign but not prosper. Reigning and prospering in contrast to the last uh, kings here. Uh, fourth asterisk, this king would execute judgment and justice in the earth. So, fourth asterisk, es execute judgment and justice in the earth. And this is in contrast to the last number of kings who have executed judgment, but there hasn't been justice. And like a lot of our court cases today, they execute judgment, but how much justice is there? Laws made to protect the criminal now. Is that just? 
not just judgment. It's unjust judgment. But here this king, asterisk number four, he would execute judgment and justice. Uh, asterisk number five, in his days, Judah would be saved. Saved how? Saved from what? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Saved from what? So, asterisk number five, Judah shall be saved. Asterisk number six, Israel shall dwell safely. And I think we all recognize that just Israel today, the modern state of Israel not dwelling very safely. I think you'd all agree with that, wouldn't you? If you see the news today, but we've got the news behind, the news in the Bible. Israel to dwell safely. Number seven asterisk. This is his name. His name shall be called the Lord our righteousness, a redemptive name. So asterisk number uh, seven here. His name shall be called the Lord our righteousness, breaking up the parts of the verse here, a redemptive name. In contrast to all the unrighteous kings, this would be a righteous king. And then the last thought from the other scriptures here, the last asterisk is, upon the throne of David. Upon the throne of David, to order it and establish it. I'd ask you a question today, where is the throne of David? Because when the angel Gabriel appeared to the Virgin Mary, said, you shall conceive... And that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And uh, the Lord will give unto him the throne of his father David. Did Jesus get the throne of David? Where is that throne? All right, let's move on quickly because our time is. Okay, so what I'm saying here, so the last point there was the throne of David. The last asterisk, the throne of David. He would inherit the throne of David. All right, now. I hope I'm communicating here that it's in the midst of this uh, sad situation when the last five kings of Judah and the Davidic throne are being rooted out and pulled down, plucked up and destroyed and, and, the, and the house of Jews saying, what about the covenant? What about the Davidic covenant? What about the throne of David? Where's the scepter? Where is the king? Jeremiah just speaks into that apparently hopeless and helpless situation and says, the days are coming when I will have a king and he'll be a righteous king. He'll reign and prosper. He'll execute judgment. And, and uh, Judah will be saved through this king. And Israel will dwell. And I'll tell you what the name of this king is. Jehovah said, can you? The Lord our righteousness. So it, it would mean very much to them in the midst of that situation. Okay, now let's move on to section D. And I'd like you to go to Romans 3. Romans 3. Now as we've been saying, each of the redemptive names are spoken into a situation where man needs. Man has a need, and man's greatest need is righteousness. Now, in Romans chapter 3, we find that man is born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and unrighteous before a holy and righteous God. Scripture shows the universality of sin. So in Romans 3, uh, we won't read the whole passage, although we'll pick it up uh, before we're through here. In verse 9, Paul writing to prove the universality of sin, whether Jew or Gentile. What then? Are we, the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? No, in no wise. So Jews and Gentiles, uh, no, no, none are better than the other. So why is it that preachers try to make the Jews better than the Gentiles? 
okay, and deify an unregenerate, Christ-rejecting nation. And so they're still the chosen people. They're the chosen nation. They're the elect nation. That is not biblically true since the cross. Okay? Listen to Paul's argument. What then? Are we Jews better than they, the Gentiles? No, in no wise. In absolutely no way. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles, they're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. What, just the Gentiles? Or does this include the Jew? Both. Right? Why, don't, why don't we tell the Jew that instead of saying, oh, you're the chosen nation, you're the select of the elect, it doesn't matter, as long as you're a Jew, you're right, you're the chosen nation. No, not since the cross. There is none that understand. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their, the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now listen to this. We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So Jew or Gentile, the whole world is guilty before God. There is none righteous, no, not one. So how many think uh, in the light of just that one scripture alone that we need righteousness? All right, so as you've got on your notes, man born in sin, shape and iniquity and unrighteousness before holy and righteous God. There's none righteous, no, not one, not Jew nor Gentile. Man needs right standing. Uh, E.W. Kenyon uh, defines righteousness as being in right standing with God and with each other. I like that uh, definition too. Now turn over to Romans chapter 10 and verse 3 and see the problem of righteousness and what man does, once man comes to a sense of his unrighteousness and there's none righteous, no, no not one, what does man do? What does uh, Jew or Gentile seek to do? And this is a very important scripture and there's three particular statements out of the verse I want you to write down on your notes here. Alright, so man realizing he is unrighteous as he tries to make himself righteous, make himself acceptable. Listen to Romans 10 and we'll break up this verse in three parts. first of all, and then uh, tell you what you need to write in where the three asterisks are. Okay, uh, I'll pick up in verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. All right, how are they going to be saved? Whosoever should call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. That is such a powerful verse. Let me break it up for you in your three asterisks. Number one, the first thing Paul says, and he's talking particularly about the Jew at the moment, who has a, ge a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. So number one, he says, they are ignorant of God's righteousness. That's your first uh, fill-in there on that line. 
ignorance of God's righteousness and how many of God's people and how many of the world are ignorant of God's righteousness. Remember we've been saying in Bible school that the Holy Spirit comes to convict of sin and of righteousness. Ignorance of God's righteousness. Now, when a person, number two asterisk, when a person is ignorant of God's righteousness, what do they do? Second uh, uh, clause, they go about to establish their own righteousness. Okay? A very powerful verse is this. Whole message in itself. So number one, ignorance of God's righteousness. And how many people are ignorant of God's righteousness? Number two, out of ignorance of God's righteousness, what happens? Get into works. We go about to establish our own righteousness. So your second fill in there is just what the scripture says, going about to establish their own righteousness. When we're ignorant of God's righteousness, we go about to establish our own righteousness. And when we go about to establish our own righteousness, we come to clause number three of that verse, and that is, they do not submit themselves to the righteousness of God. So number three, they do not submit to the righteousness of God. Now how many see that Paul's saying that there's an order there? Ignorance of righteousness leads one to go and try and establish his own righteousness, and when you go and establish your own righteousness, you don't submit to the righteousness of God. How many are glad that you've submitted to the righteousness of God? We have to submit to it. Okay? And the opposite of submission is rebellion. Okay? So ignorance of God's righteousness leads man to go about to establish his own righteousness. And when you establish your own right, I'm good as you. I'm as good as anybody who goes to the church. All in the church, a bunch of hypocrites. Come and join us then, okay? Uh, they won't submit to the righteousness of God. Lack of submission, insubordination, rebellion. So it's just that, that, that's just a cycle. Now, turn over the page uh, quickly here. All right, now, what's the result? When a person, whether Jew or Gentile, is ignorant of God's righteousness, they go about to establish their own righteousness and they won't submit to the righteousness of God. What have you got? What's the result? Okay, the scripture here speaks of two kinds of righteousness in scripture. Number one, for you fill in there, and I quote Isaiah 64 verse 6, all our righteousnesses, as filthy rags. So, number one, self-righteousness. See, when we're ignorant of God's righteousness and we, won't, we go about to establish our own, when we go about to establish our own righteousness, that is self-righteousness. Right? Or, on your second line there, related to this one, very much related, is um, legal or Law, I'll say this and hope you can pick it up what I'm saying here. Legal or law works righteousness. I've hyphened that. Uh, if you've got Romans 9 there open, just go back to Romans 9. So what I'm saying here under the two kinds of righteousness, self-righteousness or legal righteousness. You can just put that down. Uh, the law, works of the law. Let's uh, read Romans 9. This may help us here. Romans 9 and verse uh, 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, listen to the language here, that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, 
which followed after the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Wherefore? I'll tell you why. Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law. So it's a law works righteousness. Working. A self-righteousness manifest in works. Okay, number two. The second... uh, the second uh, kind of righteousness in Scripture is number two, is faith righteousness in Christ. Faith righteousness in Christ. So we have self-righteousness or legal law works righteousness or faith righteousness in Christ. One is trusting what we can do and the other is trusting what Christ has already done. Turn to Philippians chapter 3 and Paul is... Uh, undoubtedly the master of the revelation of faith righteousness. Philippians chapter 3, just for our last two or three moments here. Uh, Philippians 3, and I've put down the whole passage there. Let's just pick out a couple of verses here. In verse uh, 6, Paul says, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and listen to this, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. Now, External, law righteousness, external. But then in verse 9, he says, I want to be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, self-righteousness, legal law, works righteousness, working your way to justify yourself before God, that I might be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Isn't that powerful? So, faith, righteousness. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a couple of other scriptures before we wrap up here. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And this uh, scripture is on your sheet under section E here. We're looking at the New Testament revelation. The New Testament revelation confirms and fulfills the Old Testament prophecies. The Lord our righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ. So 2 Corinthians 5, and let's read verse uh, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I mean, how can you comprehend that verse? So God has made him to be sin for us in no sin. All that we were, God placed on Christ. And all that Christ was, God has placed on us, in him. I, I, that, that statement is so heavy, my little mind boggles with it. God has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I'm in him tonight. Are you in him tonight? And when God sees me, he sees me through Christ. And the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The, the Lord, our righteousness. Jehovah sin can you. This is the name wherewith she shall be called. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.30, our last verse here. This is on your notes here. And I have applied uh, at least three of the redemptive names to the New Testament language here. And I think it's very appropriate. 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 30. And Paul says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us, number one, wisdom. 
Lord our wisdom. I haven't found a redemptive name for that, but the Lord is our wisdom. But these three are interesting. And righteousness. Jehovah said, can you? And sanctification. Jehovah Makadishim. We've looked at these redemptive names. And redemption. Jehovah our Redeemer. All in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, finishing down the bottom of your notes there. Christ is our righteousness. He is Jehovah said, can you? The Lord our righteousness. Romans 4 shows that Abraham and David knew the righteousness of faith even under Old Testament times. And this is really important for us to lay hold on. Judicial righteousness must become practical righteousness. Righteousness imputed internally must be manifested and outworked externally. It is inwrought and outlived. Positional righteousness always leads to experiential righteousness. And Paul says, grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. So thank the Lord for this wonderful name, the redemptive name, the Lord my righteousness. God sees me in Christ. Let's all stand as we close in prayer. Father, again we thank you for the glory of this redemptive name. Lord, as we think upon your name, we just thank you for the glory of it. We thank you, Lord, that you see us in Christ tonight. The Lord our righteousness, Jehovah said, can you? We thank you, Lord, that in these days, that the days are here, when the righteous branch has been raised up unto David, the Lord Jesus Christ, King, reigns and rules and prospers and executes judgment and justice in the earth. And Lord, that through him we have salvation and calling upon your name and that, Father, we thank you that you see us in Christ who is our righteousness. We pray, Lord, it'll just not be a theory, but that the imputed righteousness shall be inwrought and outworked in our lives in a practical way for your glory and the extension of your kingdom. Let your blessing be upon us now, Father, until we gather again in the precious name of Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Everybody said amen. Be sure to visit kevinconnor.org for more information about Kevin, his books, and his ministry.